Did we know that Huddersfield is literally the home of rugby league? In 1895, John and Mark, a little education for you, the Northern Rugby Football Union, based in the town, split from the established RFU following a payment dispute with the, uh, the union and the players from the Northern clubs. And then down the line, basically league was born. Heard it before, been there, got the T-shirt. Uh, Huddersfield is also the birthplace of the former Prime Minister, Harold Wilson. And it's the home of Britain's largest nodding dog, 11 feet tall, if you're asking. And also the Sex Pistols played their last, you'll like that one, John, their last two British shows at Ivanhoe's nightclub in Huddersfield on Christmas Day in 1977. It is also the hometown of Michael Lawrence, who's turned out more than 300 times for the Giants. Michael, welcome to Out of Your League. Should we be jealous of you growing up in Huddersfield or, or not? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say so, being a local boy, definitely. It's a great place to be, great place to grow up. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's good to have you on. Look, um, essentially, Michael, you, you need to educate us for the next hour or so because we're all from different, very different backgrounds. Wilkin is from a, a pig farm in Hull. Uh, Mark was born with a, a silver spoon up his arse and in his mouth. And I'm a, I'm a public school wanker. So, and, and look, I, I, I guess just list, the listeners in general um, for Out of Your League... I'm pretty sure, John, you'd say as well, it's 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 a very white audience in, ter in terms of certainly the ones who engage with this on social media and stuff as well. So look, I'm fascinated to have this chat, um, Michael. I, I wanted, to, wanted to just go in hard straight away. How different, how difficult has the last year been as a black man since the death of, of George Floyd? How much has that changed you and, and how much has life changed for you since then? Um... Yeah, life has probably changed a lot, really. Um, obviously, since the terrible tragedy that happened in, in America, the death of George Floyd um, and the Black Lives Matter protests starting. Um, obviously, when we was after the lockdown and we was, Super League was starting up again, um, we knew something needed to be done. Obviously, football had already begun and, and players began taking the knee in football. And I was approached by Sky um, and me and a couple of my teammates, um, Ashton Golden and and Jordan Turner um, to just share our, our experiences um, pretty much of, of being black rugby league players and our experiences of, of racism really. And um, obviously we did the interview um, and when it got released on, on the first day back when we started playing, there was a lot of a lot of really good positive feedback, but there was also a lot of backlash as well, um, which really highlighted some things for myself really. Um, um, obviously all, all the negative comments and things like that. Um, and then from then, um, literally, there was a lot of there was a lot of confusion and and obviously uh, misunderstanding um, by by the message and, and from the interviews and the RFL decided to to pull away um, to pull away and create their own their own their own label and their own brand and their own organisation to try to try tackle this thing and, and make rugby league a, a more inclusive and diverse sport and that's how they came up with the tackle it initiative. Um, but I was I was a big I was a big part in all those talks really. After after that first interview, I did numerous podcasts, Zoom calls with people from Sky, the media, about what we can do uh, in the sport to make it better. Um, pretty much, and yeah, pretty much after as it came to the end of the season, um, I got a, a call from the RFL saying that they were putting this board together and um, be really interested if, if 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 I'd be a part of it and if I'd want to be a part and. I'm the type of person who doesn't, I don't like to start something and not finish it. I like to see things through. Um, I didn't just want to do do the interview and then and then sit down and not be involved anymore. Uh, Michael, I'm, I'm interested to know, um, obviously you got involved with the, the campaign of Black Lives Matter and then the subsequent one by the RFL. I'm interested to know your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter label because... Uh, I remember at the time when it was all happening, it was it was all around police brutality and and like racially motivated attacks on black people, specifically in the US to begin with. Uh, from my point of view, I, from the offset, I, I totally agree with the, the sentiment and everything around it. But when I was watching some of the scenes unfold on the news and stuff, and and you saw obviously lots of the idiotic views and statements that white lives matter and all lives matter. Do you think this, the the label of Black Lives Matter was quite divisive and polarizing 
uh, amongst the population and m- perhaps made people pick a side a little bit rather than just um, push the agenda of racial equality. Because uh, obviously lots of idiotic views by idiotic people. But I think one thing I thought was it's the idiotic people that need to be taught and 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 shown where the issues are. So you kind of you kind of having to to teach the idiots why they're wrong, and if they're already off, off on the off off put off put to begin with, then it, it's hard to kind of start that education. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. You you. It's like you're fighting an uphill battle, really. Um, the first first thing you've got to want um, people to to want to learn and want to understand. Um, obviously, in life, you're going to get some people that don't want to and setting the words and setting the views. Um, but yeah, that, that that that's the first step, really. People wanting to to understand and engage and be open to hearing um, other people's point of views and and why and why um, the Black Lives Matter protests matter and and obviously tackle it and, and racial equality, why it matters and Obviously, they've got to want to learn and and and, cha- and obviously change their opinions and views. Be open to change, really. If they're not open to change, then it's very tough. Look, Michael, what what is the the reasoning then behind? Because Huddersfield are continuing to take the knee, and I know you're you're captain there. Um, is that still having an impact for you? Why are some teams not doing it? We've seen it in in football as well. And how many discussions do you have regularly on that? Do you, do you meet up with the other captains, with the other coaches, to talk about it? No, so obviously, um, probably a month before the season started, um, the, the, we had a, an inclusion board meeting about um, the protocols, um, what we was going to do uh, with going forward the season pre-game. Obviously, last year, um, in start of July, before we came back after the lockdown, um, there was a fair few um, call, phone calls with captains from different teams, um, senior players in different teams regarding what we was going to do when we started playing again. Um, Everybody came to the conclusion that we was going to take the knee, but as you saw, um, as the season restarted, some players didn't take the knee just because they didn't want to. There was religious reasons. Some teams showed to show their support in different ways. Um, obviously, Ed Warrington stood in the circle, and and other forms, other forms of showing support. Um, so the main reasons for that, um, when I did speak to some people, was obviously not knowing enough, not knowing enough about about the whole the whole situation. Obviously, about Black Lives Matter and and racial equality and things like that. Um, but then this season, obviously going forward, um, it came, we spoke to Super League, we spoke to the RFL, and they decided that they wanted to make, um, they didn't want to make it compulsory this year. Last year, players players were told we was going to protest, you, you was going to blow the whistle and you was going to take a knee for 10 seconds. This year, we just thought, we're going to give people the opportunity. If they want to, they can. You've got 13 seconds there to show your support for any, it's not just Black Lives Matter, it's for anything anything that you feel passionate about that you want to that you want to stand up for that you want to support um and it, and it and you've got the 13 seconds there to show what you want to do really um i can speak from a huddersfield point of view um i spoke to my players um when we found out this was happening i said boys um myself and obviously a few other players um i i'll be taking the knee but it's to- i'm totally open to to anybody um if you if you've got if you've got reasons that you want to stand you can do you can do that if you want but um we spoke as a team and and uh, we wanted to look um, united, um, and obviously my teammates support my and other people's beliefs, and I support my teammates as well. So yeah, we decided that we were going to be united, and, and everybody was willing to take the knee. I think it's only us and Saint Helens that do in the league, but some other teams have chose to do what they want to do. But it, it's it's a choice, um, as I say, that nobody's being forced to do anything. It's um, if they choose not to, they don't have to. Mm. John, what would be your stance on it as a as a captain if you were still, you know? In that dressing room at St Helens or Toronto, or leading a team out, and how would you would deal with that with a very mixed dressing room? Well, I think uh, look, the, the the taking of the knee became a, a real symbol of um, I think understanding that racial inequality was coming to the forefront of 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 society at that point, um, and and at that moment, I felt like the taking of the knee within sport was the right thing, much like we go back to Colin Kaepernick doing it uh, when he was representing police violence against black people in, in, in the United States. And 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 that that sentiment on its own made a stand. Now, this is where it became strange because what we started talking about was not 
people taking the knee and actually what that meant. It was more, I was doing coverage for the TV and we're talking about Israel Folau didn't take the knee and what that meant. And 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 when it when it gets bastardized by people to like make the wrong point or to get it off topic, I think it can be actually counterproductive when it becomes so disjointed. For Michael and his teammates, like them all taking the knee and that's that sign of solidarity, that's a message, right? Uh, I I just feel and it, it's look, we we don't know where it's going. It's always evolving. But at the point at which I was engaging in conversations, people are asking me, why hasn't he taken the knee? Why has this guy taken the knee? And at that point, I was like, we're missing the point here completely. We're missing the point of why it was done. And we're talking about things that are largely fucking irrelevant to this issue. And, and when it got to that point, Will, that's when I started saying, is this doing what it was intended to, or has it just diverted the narrative off, you know, racism that exists that we all would admit exists and we all, you know, would, would acknowledge exists. And Michael's got lived experience of that. And, you know, we've got to listen to that, but we all, we all acknowledge it exists. But at that point, the narrative went off to like, you know, why isn't this guy taking the knee? And, you know, the assumptive reasons behind that. And that's when I started getting, not for street, frustrated by it but I was almost a little bit fatigued by it and thought well we need to move this on and and, and I think that we are doing and it can be part of a, a group of things that help move the conversation on but I hate it when it gets kidnapped by people and then used to talk about something else I think that's the wrong you know the wrong treatment of it you know yeah, I think I think also there's there's only so far players can go. They can take a knee and they can make a stance, but things is, things have got to change at government level and at, at sporting organisational level because um, I'm sure there is racism that still exists in the game, whether that's in changing rooms on the terraces. But I'd like to see sporting organisations take more, more of a firm stand when when things and uh, encounters happen because. That's that's their chance to stand up. I mean, you touched on it there. The the the, the tackle it um, campaign with the, with the RFL, uh, and and you are currently the only player on the RFL inclusion board, which was established as part of this game wide commitment to diversity, inclusion, and, and anti discrimination. And 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 we and we mentioned it earlier as well. Recently, you've become the only Black British captain in Super League. How, how much of a deeper responsibility is that for you? And and growing up in Huddersfield, how included did you feel in the community? And what kind of discrimination did you experience from fans, coaches, fellow players, Joe Bloggs in the street? Um, so obviously, um, the first, your first question, obviously being being the only black captain and obviously um, playing for Huddersfield, um, yeah, it's a privilege, and I see it as a um, a big responsibility. Obviously, to, I'm very proud to be the captain of my hometown club. Um, but obviously, as I, as I said in an interview I did probably last week in the Guardian, um, I see I see myself as a as a role model, um, as 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 any Super League player is really, especially to to to, to young black players um, that can relate to myself. I, I feel um, as a young as a young person, if you see somebody that's that looks like you, that's come from the same background as you, being successful and a and a positive member of society or or sport in general, um, it's something to aspire to, and, and you know you can achieve those things if you see someone who's came from the same place as you doing that. So yeah, um, I take my role. Um, I see that as a big, a big responsibility um, and a privilege as well to be in that position. Um, as far as um, abuse and things growing up, um, as I said in, in, in my interview in July, um, nothing's, I've never really experienced anything since I've, be, I've been in Super League. Um, obviously growing up, um, well in Super League, um, you just hear, as Matt touched on earlier, obviously the changing room banter and all that kind of stuff that, that's gone on over the years. Um, but um, Uddersfield's probably the most the most diverse team in the league. And as as we've, us guys have become senior players, when you're younger, you kind of just look past it. You, you don't really, you kind of do as you're told and, and keep quiet. But um, as we've become the senior players of the team now nowadays, um, those jokes don't really happen anymore, to be honest. Um, as, as we've got the respect of his teammates and the boys around us. Um, but yeah, um, experiences of, of racism growing up, it's not really been directed at me, but I've been on the field and about when stuff like that's happened. Um, I remember speaking about a time 
um, when I was playing in the academy and was playing down at London and one of their players um, dropped the ball and one of our actual supporters um, shouted out, I bet he'd have caught it if it was a banana and our coach was mixed race at that time and he ended up packing in um, and, never, and, never, and never came back training again. Um, what else is there? Um, more more the, the indirect stuff, the, the, the stereotypes. So I've had um, so many times, oh, you're not that bad for for a black lad um, around town. And um, that's something that people, they don't think it's offensive, but I find it very, very offensive. Um, yeah, just just casual stuff like that. Very, very, very casual, very not direct people saying things that they don't think is that racist, but 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 it actually is. Uh, they're, they're, they're the main experience that I've had. I've not really had been on a field and had people chanting, chanting racist things towards me. How can how can people not think you're not bad for a black lad is isn't racist? I mean, and I know and that that did stand out from the interview that you did with Sky because you said quite rightly, well, hold on, what about my brother? Or I'm just making up these people in your family, my cousin, you know, who's no. a plumber or who's who's not a super league star and and a professional athlete. Um, that's what I mean. Uh, that was the point I was making. I was thinking if I'm not walking around in this tracksuit or or. I don't know. I don't score too many tries, so I can't say scoring tries for Huddersfield on a weekend. But <laughs> same. But what 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 does what does that make me? Am, am I just any other any other any other black guy? Then are, are you just being okay with me because I'm in this position that I'm in? That that was that's kind of what didn't sit right with me. Um, to be fair, but I suppose I ain't got the answers to those questions. It's 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 those people's points of view. To be honest, I was just stating my experience. Do you think, Michael, that, right, in this situation, somebody's got deeply held, like, subconscious, like, racist views, and then they go to watch their local rugby league team, and there's a guy playing for it, like yourself, who sort of dispels the myths or the preconceived conceptions of what he's expecting from a young black man in West Yorkshire, and all of a sudden... And this is where I think it comes from, Will. He feels the need to tell you that you've done okay, considering all, you know, that sort of conversation. I'm like, that's, but what you're doing is, yeah, it's mind blowing. But what I think I'm just going to pull flash up just on one thing. He was saying about sport has got a job to do. And I agree sport, we can use that to, 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 to send messages. I like completely agree with that, but society has the problem. And, and sport is a really public vehicle at which that feedback comes across. Um, I, I played up in, in Whitehaven uh, for Hull KR when I was 17. I grew up in a relatively sheltered sort of life. I was, like I said, from a farming background, um, you know, not a very ethnically diverse part of the world. I started playing for Hull KR with a player called Alex Godfrey. He was like horrendously racially abused you know, on from the terraces. And I think that's the first time I ever saw the impacts of somebody looking different because to me, it, it didn't mean anything. It was just Alex, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. So I think society has a problem. I I, I think it, society comes to watch sport, <laughs> you know, by definition, Agreed. you know, people are interested in sport, but then this is where I think it flicks. And this is why the tackle it thing is important is that sport can kick, back and tell society where it's going wrong and that's where I look back to Colin Kaepernick and I look back to Donald Trump and all of this political turmoil in the USA and I think why right let's fucking use sports to stand up for people because we can because how important Michael is it that you've got a voice through sport 100% is massive Um, obviously like I said if I if I wasn't in the position I'm in, um, obviously it's privileged to be a Super League player. That I you wouldn't have nobody listened to, um, to be honest. So yeah, I feel that was one of the responsibilities I felt when I was approached by the RFL about being on the board. I thought I'm very lucky to be in this position to be asked, um, and I and I can actually have an impact uh, just by sharing my experiences and, and putting my my points of view forward. So that's that's one of the reasons I, I took up the position. Um, so hopefully help create some positive change. How do you feel about your nickname? Because I, this is the first time you and I have spoke at length and I've always known yeah. you as Bruno. I just know you, yeah. your nickname's Bruno and you're obviously called Michael Lawrence. Now, yeah. um, I think your nickname is because of Frank Bruno and the supposed yeah. likeness to Frank Bruno. I, I, I could see that as quite offensive 
as um, a black man playing sport being likened to another black man who don't really look much alike. How, how does it make you feel yeah. to, to get, have, get a, a nickname like that? Uh, it's all right, because it started um, when I was like six, seven year old in high school, in junior school. Um, so it started because of my voice was probably as deep then as it is now. Um, and oh, right. yeah, one day we, we were playing very, football. It's very and- deep, Michael. It's very deep. <laughs> There's just a whale. In a minute, a whale's just going to swim past his back window like that. It's like that's the only animals he can communicate with. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were just having a kick about at school and we were picking teams and one of the, the year sixes just said, oh, he laughs like Frank Bruno. And, and literally, uh, my amateur team got hold of it and it's just stuck ever since and just followed me through through pretty much. Um, yeah, so that's where it's come from. So, no, it's, it's not about actually uh, what what I look like. It was more the, more the deep voice that it's come from, to be fair. Because because Emil Heskey got the same nickname, I must have uh, pre- presumed wrong then. But no, the two black guys no, was... playing sport have been likened to another, another black athlete. Yeah. No, no, no. It's just about the voice, to be honest. Um, but I suppose... Uh, but yeah, no, it started in school and, and the guy that gave me the name was another black guy as well, so... Uh, no, but I'm, I'm fine with the nickname. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, Michael, R- rugby league has has made no secret, has it, of of its desire to um, to become a more culturally diverse and welcoming sport. That is not an yeah. overnight fix, is it? And, I, no. and I'm sure you've had this in your you know your brief time on this inclusion board. How how on earth does it go about that and 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 tackle it? I mean, to you know, no pun intended. Yeah, so it's it's a five, initially a, a five year plan, uh, and each board member I think we're on there for two years before you can reapply or be reelected. I think, um, and each each of the goals they're all they're all measurable. Um, pretty much the goals that they've set out to do. If you, if you go onto obviously the RFL website, you can you can see actually the, the plan on there. Um, but there's there's all kinds of stuff on there. Some of the main points for me are obviously. Getting in participation up in 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 obviously different cultural ethnic communities. Um, obviously, as you know, um, areas of Bradford, Leeds, Manchester. There's 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 large communities here that that are not in touch with the game. Um, and I think it starts with the grassroots level. I think getting get into schools, getting into amateur clubs in those areas, and and, and spreading the game in there and increasing participation participation levels with it within within. 10, five, five, 10 years time, then that starts to flow through to the top level of the game and into obviously the championship and you start seeing the sport looking more diverse if, you, if we can get these communities engaged. Also, I think we're missing out on, on, on a massive a massive fan base, a new fan base that we can join to the sport. Obviously, everybody knows the game needs expansion and new fans. It's been stuck on the M62 for the last 20 years, um, pretty much so. Um, I think yeah, um, for the game to grow, uh, diversity is definitely needed, and I think um, the grassroots level and getting in there. But I think that's the way to do it. I find that quite strange, though, in a way, just listening to you talk there, because you know there's a feeling in rugby league, isn't there, that that it's failed to connect with those multicultural societies in in essentially, you know, the sports heartlands, the 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 northern parts of England, northern England, Huddersfield, for example, and you know this more than anyone, has a massive Caribbean community. So why have they not engaged with the sport over the years? When when let's face it, the black stars have been playing rugby league since day dot. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure. I think um, just you have to, I just have to get into clubs and just find find ways to get people in, in, in involved and joined to the sport. A lot of a lot of people in this town. A lot of people think it's a rugby town, but it's not. It's a football-based town. Um, you'll you'll find that most most kids will play, will choose football over, over rugby in Huddersfield. Uh, we come obviously we we average probably about five to seven thousand fans a game, whereas town they're selling out the stadium and, and they're in the championship. So it is actually a football town, and I think obviously trying to pull those um, kids over to rugby league and and get them into the junior teams around the area. Um, that's what we've got to try to do, um, to be honest. But obviously that starts by going into schools and then it, getting these kids up to, to local teams. I think we've got about six six local teams in Huddersfield. And uh, yeah, um, those numbers need to increase. Mm. Do, do you think that then the history of the game, and in, and in terms of, I mentioned those black stars who played rugby league from, from day dot, needs ramming down people's throat, needs ramming down communities' throats. And for those who don't know, like I was doing a bit of reading into this, and the first black athlete to play professional rugby league was a guy called Lucius 
uh, Banks, who I'm sure you know about, Michael. And he, he signed for Hunslet. Uh, in 1912 he was a US soldier he was spotted playing American football by a Hunslet club member in New York he was on business and then of course you know much further down the line you've had the great Clive Sullivan who became the uh, the first black captain of any British national sporting side when he led Great Britain to, to the World Cup in 1972 he grew up in Cardiff and he's got a fascinating story isn't he in, in the 1950s um and I think it, it was an open secret back then that he was never going to be selected to play for the for the Welsh national team because because he was black, as simple as that. So he had to think outside the box and he, he joined the army. And while he was stationed in Catterick in um, in North Yorkshire, he played in a trial match for Hull and kind of the rest of his history. He scored a hat-trick, became one of the greatest players in the club's history, 250 tries. And then when Hull pied him off in, in 1974, he went down the road and, and joined Hull KR and, and stayed for another seven years and scored 118 tries. So, you know, that... These guys need to be celebrated. Billy Boston, Des Drummond, uh, Des Drummond you know, Ellery Hanley, Martin Afire, um, who was on Sky. I know when your piece came out as well, talking very passionately about it. Jason Robinson. These guys have left an incredible mark on the game. And and along with the likes of you and the guys who are still playing, it, it's that seems such an easy piece of the jigsaw to put in place, doesn't it? 100%, yeah. Um, that, that, that's the legacy that them, boy, them guys have left. And... Um, those guys you mentioned uh, when I when I first started playing um, as a kid, it was Jason Robinson and and Leon Price were the, were the people that that I looked up to at that at that time, and they were the ones that inspired me to to pick up a rugby ball and start playing. And yeah, it's very important. It's very important. Like I said um, a little bit earlier, when when you see people that look like you that have come from the same place as you playing and doing well at that level, that, that gives you the belief that you can achieve that and you can be there playing with them guys. There's um, one one name you missed there, Will. And it's a really important name uh, for me for a number of reasons. And, and it's a guy called Roy Francis, who was uh, a fantastic player, you know, first and foremost, but was the first black uh, sports coach in, in in this country, team sports coach. And, you know, rugby league, like I said, I think society has an issue. I think rugby league along the way has pioneered and led in lots of ways when it comes to things like race and inclusion and 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 you know this guy Roy Francis if you think back to sort of 1947 he was playing through the 50s into the 60s like this guy um really booked the trend in, not just in terms of um being an athlete but then going into a leadership role and that you know is something of a different challenge I think uh, to getting guys to play young uh, black athletes to to engage in rugby league is, I think, a relatively easy sell. It's the migration from 70% of the NFL being um, black to then zero coaches, or you know what I mean, a, a reduction in that volume up to the top level. And, and that's what interests me because I don't really know why that's the, the case, you know, and that that's... Something when I started listening and re, you know reading about Michael and reading around these issues, the big interesting thing for me was how many athletes then transferred up to top level of coaching and top level of FTSE companies and and all of that and 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 then I started to to read more and 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 started looking at the statistics behind it and then I realised how tough actually it is for you know a young you know, black athlete to make it into like the boardroom or to make it into the coach's office just because of the sheer volume of numbers once you get to that sort of end of the population. And I think the big challenge is for somebody to 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 make that move, to to re-engage with our roots, which is, um, you know, uh, uh, that history of giving the first black coach the opportunity. And I think that change in management, leadership, the confluence of ideas and cultures needs to happen at that the top level as much as it does in the playing population. I think this it comes down to pigeonholing again in, in terms of position on um, on a rugby field for one and then certain characteristics that society thinks black and white people possess more in abundance. After I chat with Kyle Eastman a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Jordan Turner and he said a lot of what was mentioned resonated with him. Um, and he, he says quite passionately how he was, he's was he been stereotyped throughout his career. From a young lad in Oldham, and I've known him for a while, he was always a standoff, always an out-and-out standoff. And then 
up until the age of 18, I think he must have had, he was brought through the Salford's first team, had a few bad games, and then he was immediately pushed out to set the centre position. And the coach wouldn't persevere with him playing, playing standoff because even though that had always been his natural position, it was the assumption that he was just big and fast and to use those characteristics. Now, it was quite frustrating for him at that age to be pushed out wide to a position he'd never played. But it kind of, it took away his best, best assets, which were decision-making and game awareness. And I think subtle things like that have happened a lot of times through various players' career based on those kind of racial stereotypes. 100% agree. I don't know if I said in the, in the interview in July, the same thing happened to me as a kid. Um, when I first joined News and Pomp as my, my local amateur team, I was only a seven-year-old kid and he put me on the wing pretty much. And I stayed there till I was 14 and, 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 the, and the coach left. And I didn't really develop too much, but I loved the game. But I'd, I'd turn up to every training session, turn up every Sunday, play every game, standing, freezing out on the wing. And it wasn't until that coach left and um, Darren Fleury, an ex-pro who was playing for Huddersfield um, at the time, he took over as our coach and he took an interest in me and, and he changed my position from the wing to standoff, um, taught me how to pass, um, kicked, worked on tackling and all that kind of stuff. And my, my game flourished. And that year I went on to earn a scholarship. I played for Yorkshire in England against Wales at youth level, all in the in space of one season. So, yeah, if it wasn't for that pigeonholing and, and the, the, the look um, that, that Daz came and, and took over my amateur team, I probably wouldn't be sat here in this position now, to be honest. Um, but so, I think it's quite yeah. important to think it was only at 14 you got moved to standoff. However, at six year old, if you've been put in that position, how many hours of practice would you have passing, catching, kicking to play a position like standoff? And how much more of a better player could you have potentially been now had you had all those hours training at sticks or, and, and playing at that position rather than you stuck out the wing? We all know now that practice and, and the 10,000 hour theory is what makes professionals great. I think it's really important from a young age that, that, that kids, black or white, aren't stereotyped to play a certain position because you might be negating their natural instincts to play a certain position. 100%. 100%. I think the, the, the assumption was that he's, he's quick, let's, let's put him out there and, and that's that pretty much. Um, but yeah, if, if I'd have been put in that position earlier, um, my, my skills would have developed because I'd have had even, like you say, more time spent training touching the ball, being involved at playing the game, being involved in the game, because up until that time, you'd probably, playing on the wing, you'd probably touch the ball at amateur level two or three times in the first half, two or three times in the second, if you were looking, and that would be the game. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it was massive for my development, moving position. It's, it's just really shit coaching that, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Pretty much. It's just terrible coaching. Yeah, yeah, do you know? Like, we need to, like, move on, don't we? You know, as in... Like how we even start, like I, I think there's a change coming, Michael. Like I feel it sort of and, and through the work that you you you're doing, I think, you know, George, the George Floyd you know, uh, incident, all of that sort of political movement um is leading to it going somewhere, but we need to move it on. Like this is it's basic stuff, isn't it? Somebody, right, we've got a black lad who's quick, we're gonna throw him on the wing. Like I would never have made that decision, I would never think like that. A flash, you would never think like that. No, Will, no, I wouldn't. Think but like I don't, I, I don't so have racist views now, on, which is why we've still got racist views now. We've still, I'm guessing, having put in young lads in those situations because we need to move forward as a society, not just certain parts of it. Well, look, and it, and it is far more backward, you could say, in, in rugby union. And I've got a lot of contacts and old mates who, who play in rugby union. You know, Jason Robinson, who like of course, will. a product who like of... Will. Who like <laughs> I don't want to drop any names. Big, bigger dogs, bigger dogs <laughs> no, than you. No, you do. But... <laughs> no, no, names. Come on, but, give names. Who's your best on, friend in your rugby names. union? Uh, Roger Ratney. Haskell, oh, uh, friends. <laughs> <laughs> he was my he was my old uh, he was my old teacher he was my old PE teacher Michael don't worry about that one um, no but listen Jason Robinson right a product of Wigan Warriors was rugby union England's first captain okay a, a World Cup winner in two thousand and three of course but he was the the first black player to captain England's rugby union side that late on you know we're talking what you know fifteen twenty years ago. Um, li listen to these stats here, because I think these are quite alarming, right? In 2000, there were 21 black British-born players who played in Super League. 21, yeah? Fast forward to 2010, 10 years on, that number was up to 25. Only 11 black players 
last season who were born in Britain featured in the Super League. So if you compare that to sort of Premier League football, and I know that's a, a much bigger pool and pit, but that figure is over seven times higher. Okay, so less than 8% of players in the community game identify as black, Asian, uh, minority ethnic, according to, to the RFL's latest figures. And when you count solely black players, that number is even lower. I mean, the, the, the stats speak for themselves. The professional game has one black coach and you know him very well, Michael. Uh, London scholars Jermaine Coleman, who's the, the who's going to be the Jamaica boss at the, the 2021 World Cup. And, and there is not a single black chief executive or administrator currently in a job. There is a stigma, Michael, around black people not being up to the top jobs, being the top dogs, the head coach, the main man or woman. You know, you, you're more than happy to go and, oh, yeah, go and stand next to Ian Watson on the sidelines. Go and do that. But you can't be the main person. And that, that is a stigma, not just in rugby league, in, in the media as well. I see it at the BBC. I've seen it for the last 20 years at the BBC. You know, we, we haven't had, I, I can't think of one black person in management at the whole of BBC Sport. You know, and so, but when, when I throw those figures at you, and you know them because they, they will come up in the inclusion board. I mean, Wilco, does that surprise you, any of those numbers when you, when you put them like that on the table? Um. Yeah, well, the, the 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 lack of young black people playing in Super League doesn't surprise me at all because whether we want to admit it or not, we're in competition with football. And football is like a sponge that just absorbs. If you're athletic and you're good and, you know, whatever place you are living in now, you get taken in by football, you know, and, and, and that's that's probably why that number has decreased, I would say. Um in terms of the numbers in the in the top jobs, um, there's there's an undoubted amount of subconscious bias and stereotyping and all of this. But there's a part of it has, like I said before, without labouring this point, has to do with statistics. Is in let's say the population of the UK is a hundred hundred million, which is just to simplify it and make it a round number. Um, and there's uh, 5% of the population are black. There's 87% are white. Um, you know, at either extremes of that population, it means that by the time maybe a black guy is applying for a top job, is it, is it, not only is he against cronyism and subconscious racism, but he's against 25 white people to get that job. And then there's, in sport in particular, the only people who get the top jobs are deemed the most competent. Then all of a sudden, if you're not number one, you're not getting the job. So when you start thinking just um, and, and like it's the racism and the subconscious bias and all that is there. But when you throw into it statistically how difficult it is, that goes somewhere to explaining maybe why we see so few, um, I'd say, black chief execs and black coaches and and just before tonight what I did is I, I rang a couple of uh super league chief executives and asked if when they had put out for a head coach had they had any black applicants um any you know you know I'd say ethnic minorities or or, or you know the you know different applicants and they, they said no they said that they hadn't and and that was like alarm bells for me that there's two things maybe not enough um young black people have role models as coaches to aim for, maybe, or that there's just simply not that number of people at that level of competency to go for the jobs. And this deserves our attention, Will. It needs addressing. Look, and, and, yeah, and, Michael, look, I, I throw some bigger names at you than Roger Rutley, right? Because I've had a whole summer of, of conversations, as I'm sure you have, and, and yours are far more poignant and pertinent than mine. But I've been speaking to, you know, John Barnes, Paul Ince, um, David James, Darren Bent, all these sort of, you know, superstars of, of, of the Premier League and of football. Um, and, you know, Les Ferdinand, for example, told me the other day, the reason that he never, he did his coaching badges at the highest level. The reason that he never uh, went for a, for a Premier League job or never went for, you know, to get involved in the England setup is because he just, he just knew he was never going to get it. You know, Paul Ince was given a, a little chance at Blackburn. He was given a, a tiny chance at Macclesfield. Sol Campbell, for example. You know, th these guys have got so much to offer in terms of what they, they've been through on the international stage. And they are as qualified as your next man, who happens to be white, who's getting the job. 
Um, for example, would you, I know you're only 30, when you hang up your boots and say you wanted to go, I don't know whether you wanted to go down the, the coaching route, but let's just say you do, would you have any confidence of being able to get a job, even in rugby league where there aren't a hell of a lot, as Wilco's just said, of black applicants? I don't know, obviously. Um, I wouldn't know until I tried. Obviously, you don't, there's, like you said, there's only Jermaine in the whole country out of, out of all the divisions in rugby league. Uh, out of the three, obviously, professional divisions, we've only got, there's only one black coach. But yeah, if I was to go down that route and, and try, uh, I'd know it'd be a, a, definitely an uphill battle with, like like John said, statistically, um, the numbers are down, so the odds are already against you. Um, um, succeeding, so no, I can't really answer that on, until until if if I'm ever in that position. But do you think we need a, a sort of a Rooney rule? And for those who don't know what that is, that was brought in in 2003 in in the NFL, and that basically it, it makes it compulsory for NFL clubs. It's a policy requiring every team in the NFL, all 32 clubs, to um, have a head coach when they have a head coach vacancy to to interview at least one or more diverse candidates because let, let me put it this way i know you've got i know you've not got a whole load of people as, as john's just said queuing up black candidates diverse candidates queuing up for the jobs but unless you make a stance a club makes a stance it says we're going to have a black head coach you know we're going to have a, a black board member or a black chairman then we'll be asking these same questions in 25 years 30 years time as long as the person's qualified like the, nobody's wanting a handout nobody's wanting to be given a position uh, you've, as long as the person's fully qualified and capable of doing the job and, and good at the job they do, then I think they should just get a fair crack like everybody else uh, with, with the no sub, but but, but Michael, Jermaine Coleman can't be the only qualified black human being to be a rugby league head coach. No, that's true. I, but I, I, I don't know any others, to be fair. Obviously, I know Leon was up at Workington for a short spell. Um, other than Leon, I had... Basil Richards, um, he's the only other one that I know of. He, yeah, he he, t- he took me on on tour um, years ago with England Academy, but I've never seen him at the top level. But he must have been pretty successful then to be coaching England Academy. But why he's not kicked on and, and ever been given a, a Super League job um, or a, a top level professional club job, I don't I don't know. But there they are. They're the only three. Yeah, yeah. Look, Wilco, do you think that rugby league then is actually ready to embrace people from from all communities as a simple question uh, yeah in my experience it is but there's a small amount of ignorant people who are resistant to any form of change or are resistant to any sort of common sense or empathy or the ability to connect or just love and be kind to other people like we're never going to change are we ever going to change their minds? Like, I don't know if we are. Um, is rugby league ready? Of, uh, uh, of course it is. And and like, but what can I say? Like, I'm a white guy. Like, me, me and my wife had a, a, gr- a good chat about this. Um, and we were saying like, imagine like life is like a set of five doors that you've got to get through. And I was like, as a white working class man, maybe I've got three of those five keys to get through those doors, right? And my wife is a working class white woman, maybe has two of those keys. And uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump have got all five keys, right? So for people in life, you were all going to face barriers and, and things that stop us getting through those doors. But for people like Michael, and this is what he's doing, and this is what he has done, and it's what Colin Kaepernick did, and it's what Roy Francis did, is you say, fuck the keys. I'm just going to smash through the door. And, and and my wife is the same as a woman. You know, things are put in our path as barriers. And there's only a handful of men in the world, white men, who've got all of the keys. And for everyone else, some people have less than others. Michael undoubtedly has one less key than I do because he's black. And, and Michael's had the strength of character, the resilience of mind, to not let it put him off. But for every Michael, there's a hundred guys who got put off by that situation. And I'm all about like balancing that situation up, you know, about really looking at where the power in our planet lies, not just in this conversation, what we're having about rugby league is like a microcosm. There's some big conversations to, to be had about all that. And 
But I do think I respect people who say, well, you know, I'm not interested in the barriers people put in front of me and I'm just going to smash through them. And once you're through the other side, Michael, that's the time somebody like yourself can make a point, isn't it? 100%. I agree. There are so many questions, aren't there, as well, that that just, I say, need to be answered. It's not something you can answer overnight, but how can you instigate change when when nobody with a sort of true experience of, of knowing what it's like to be black is is there on a board to to put those views across and that's my point about the you know not just at player level and not just at head coach level at the guy who appoints the head coach you know there's a guy there who says well hold on we're at least going to interview a black candidate and i'm going to go and i know and i take your point 100 percent, michael saying that you don't want to be there as a handout but it feels almost we're at a stage where it's like you need a Rooney rule where, where let's find let's find a candidate to at least interview him and and there may be a role that maybe not even head coach that he that he that he you know or she gets on on the board of that club or you know alongside the chairman of that club. It's it's got to it's got to be genuine as well though, wasn't it? I think that the like I was reading up on the Rooney rule, Rooney rule as well, and there's a there's a there's a chance it can be taken as tokenism as well because if you're interviewing for um for for a job and and invite a wide range of applicants. You don't want you want to give the black person as much chance as, as the rest, but there's a chance that they could just be ticking a box and interviewing a black person. So I think it's got to come with a genuine uh, care for all all aspects of society. And I think that's just one thing that that I took from the Rooney Rule was that, that there's a there's a threat that it could just be tokenism and and it's just a bit of a gesture rather than actually wanting to give everyone an, an equal opportunity. Michael, answer this one honestly, and, I, and then we'll move on because I really want to talk about before we finish about Jamaica because that's that's so exciting, isn't it, for for the Rugby League World Cup? Um, you played England Knights, right? Which is Mark's very proud of. Is uh, that's his international? Well, how many England Knights caps did you have, Mark? I know more than me, but how many was just, it? One, just the one. Um, yeah. I think it scored as well. I've heard, it's a great I've heard Michael. It's a great. <laughs> it was a, it's framed. <laughs> I know you've said before, Michael, that you were in uh, an, a, an England camp or an academy camp where you were the, the only black person out of like 40 people. You've since gone on to, to play for Jamaica. You're only 30. Do, do you think... Are you only that... 30? Yeah. Michael's not only 30. He's been playing. How long have you been everyone playing? Thinks I'm all this... <laughs> this is my fault. <laughs> everyone thinks I'm like 36. It kills me. Yeah, no, I'm only 30. I debuted, I'd just gone 17 when I debuted, two, seven, 2007. Oh, it was yeah. an early start. Then. That was all yeah, it, was. it was. Yeah, everyone <laughs> thinks I'm way older than that. <laughs> you know, you retired, You've yeah. been around forever. I remember like uh, tackling you in about 1997, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, so fair. just back, back to that point, yeah. we asked um, Carl Eastman a similar thing with, with Rugby Union. Yeah. Do you think, one, that you would have played more for England. And look, answer this as honestly as you can if you had been white with your talent and what you've been doing in Super League. And, and I'll throw this one at you as well, Michael. Have a guess how many um, black players have played for England since 2011? How many black players have played since 2011? I could probably name them. There'll be Leroy, Jermaine, Callum. I think that's about it. Oh, maybe Jamie Jones as well. Is that four? There's one it? more, and I can't think who, who would it be, John. This it's five Mark since 2011. Did Mark Calderwood play? Bish, Bish yeah. had a game. In well, that, it's five. I, I can tell you, it's five. It's five since 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 2011. So yeah. I mean, that's a disturbing number. That's ten years, right? Uh, do, do do you think that you were held back for not playing for your country and not being encouraged to play beyond England nights because of your colour? No, no, not at all. Um, obviously. Um, Feel obviously my performances and the, the way I was playing at the time. I was 22, 23 when I played for the Knights um, in 2012 and 2013. Um, but after that, the people in my position, uh, I was playing back row loose forward at the time and the depth that we had in the England team in, in the back row then uh, was was massive really. You had players like Sam Burgess and uh, obviously John Berman um, and all all these Benry Westwood people that playing in the back row. John so, Wilkin no, as well. Yeah, he would have been involved in this. It's a bit in after this, my it, time, that. It's a bit after it, my time. Yeah, all those guys would have been playing. So, no, um, no, I just I just think I wasn't playing well, to, well enough to earn a spot in that position at that time in that team. So, uh, just a, a bit unfortunate on the, on the timing, really. Um, but no, I don't think it uh, because of that. 
Well, look, they're, they're frightening numbers, though, aren't they? Still, I mean, five since twenty eleven is just it's bizarre. Um, yeah, but look, on to on to Jamaica. Jamaica playing at the World Cup. I mean, that's the stuff of uh, of of cool runnings of dreams. Um, and and, uh, and uh, obviously, it can only help inspire young black players to take up the game and for black communities to to engage in this game even more. How excited are you for for that? Because I know Jason Robinson's got a big part to play with it as well. Yeah, definitely. It's it's massive. It's a massive opportunity. Uh, what the team's managed managed to do over the past. They've only been playing rugby for 11 years. So to qualify for a major tournament, it's, it's huge. Um, for the past nine years, the boys have been paying off their own back to go to America and play in the qualifiers. It was only last year that we actually we actually received sponsorship and funding um, to play against, not last year, in 2019, to play against the Knights. Um, so yeah, to qualify for a major tournament and have, obviously we've got Jason on board now and Alex Simmons and they're doing a great, great job with the, the marketing side of things. Uh, it's really exciting and it's it's a great opportunity, as you say, the World Cup coming up to really engage in the, uh, in these communities that I've been that I've been speaking about in Leeds, in Manchester, in Huddersfield, and attract this new fan base to the sport. I don't know if if you managed to get to the to the Knights game uh, when Jamaica played the Knights, but it was great. Um, I think it was over ten thousand people there. It was a, a real kind of atmosphere and. Um, yeah, it was good to see all the flags and the colour in the crowd. And um, to be honest, yeah, the, um, the Caribbean people really got behind us and, and it felt like it was a home game for us, to be honest. It was a real great experience and I'm sure there'll be lots more of that to come at the World Cup. But as, as I mentioned earlier, getting into these communities, we've got a load of different promos um, that we're going to be doing um, in the lead up to World Cup to try and go into these communities, go into these schools and, and engage and, and, and try to attract these people to the sport and to the game, definitely. Well, look, Wilco, you said it there. You said it's about, we've had these conversations, it's about what comes next because we have to move it on. That's what you said and I think you're spot on. And surely this is the perfect opportunity for Super League and for the RFL to tap into the success, even if Jamaica get absolutely walloped at the World Cup, to tap into that and and bring that into the the, the following season. Yeah, well, I'm really excited about the World Cup for for all those reasons, really. I, I, I think... It, it's a chance to spread the word of rugby league to to as many people as possible, as to many as many different societies, cultures, and backgrounds as we can. And and one thing I've been really impressed with the World Cup campaign so far is it rarely mentions rugby league. Right, the World Cup promotional stuff is not talking about rugby league. It, you know, it, it, it's about equality. It's about diversity. It's about like corporate corporate social responsibility the messaging it's about you know community like that's a big part of it and and you know the guys behind the world cup of 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 in rugby league sometimes what we're guilty of is going right oh rugby league's that good people will just love it you know they'll love it you know they'll watch it and they'll love it and you think no they won't they, they need an emotional reason to get involved and, and and Jamaica's story might be a reason for, for many people to engage with the game. The wheelchair uh, rugby league might be a reason for many people to engage with the game. The women's game might be a huge reason to re-engage with that, you know, the, 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 that feminine audience that we've historically always had. So this is why the World Cup's exciting. It's not men aged between 19 and 35 just beating each other up and that's interesting. It's like look at the scale, the scope our game's got, and let's explore where that can go. And that's that for me is why I'm excited by the World Cup. Not the rugby. I mean, the rugby is going to be cool, like of course it is, but it's more what can come off the back of it. And it's almost timely of what's going on. I think we we, we need more from the sport. We need more from people, and maybe the uh, the World Cup can inspire that. Look, we could have a we could have a beautiful story with Mark Flanagan coming out of retirement. Mark, have you got any long lost um, Jamaican relatives? W- would Flanagan get in the Jamaica starting team? Would I no, mean prob- no. probably not? No, I'm quite interested. You can to play know halfback. What? Uh, yeah, sometimes. What? Um, what's it like playing in Jamaica? Have you have have you played rugby league in Jamaica? How was it received? And is there much of a competition over there? And and how is it going over there? In the grassroots level. So, Romeo, who's the head coach, um, he's the guy who's in charge of rugby league in Jamaica. I've never, I've, I've never, I've never been to the island, but he's literally 
11 years ago, watched the game, fell in love with the game and, and, and managed to start an, an amateur league over there is, um, pretty much and, and they're up and running and six of those players, between four and six, will be making up the World, World Cup squad. Then players will be coming over to play in the World Cup and, and we've got the, the All Blacks in our, we've got the Kiwis in our group so it's going to be it's going to be a massive, massive test for those guys that are playing amateur rugby. Not even on rugby fields, they play on football fields. They don't actually have a, a rugby field set up over there. So, yeah, it's going to be a massive, massive, massive shock to the system when they come over. But, um, yeah, um, it's going to be a great experience and a great learning experience for them guys. But, yeah, what Romeo's managed to do over there to, to grow the game. And, um, obviously, since we've qualified for the World Cup, interest has gone up and, and those players that come over, people will be following them on the island and following the World Cup and, and hoping they represent the nation very well. Yeah, look, it's such a brilliant story. And look, we're, we're going to leave you this week, Michael, with a little uh, quiz about Jamaica, a little quickfire quiz about Jamaica. I just want to see how, how Jamaican you are and what your knowledge is. I, I'm going to need at least two Christ. correct Ooh, answers. This is terrible. Ooh. This is awful. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to need at least two because correct all answers, do, Michael. All he can do is fail. For you well, to go to the World Cup. him up to fail. <laughs> Michael, it's I'm going to need two correct uh, answers. <laughs> I know you were, but look, if you're going to represent that beautiful country at the World Cup, I need two out of six right. Okay, here we go. Okay. First question: The Jamaican flag, Michael, comes from a national competition. Uh, the green represents the lush landscape. The yellow for the golden sunshine, and the black on the Jamaican flag. Represents what, Michael? No idea. No, no idea. The, uh, the answer is the strength and creativity of the Jamaican people. On to the second That's question. Exactly. So you're one, one down and one wrong. It. Very, very I specific. I was, I was thinking the people. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we can't, I can't yeah, take what you were thinking, Michael. Word for word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number two. Uh, the author, Ian Fleming, designed and built his house in Oco Rios and called it Goldeneye. And it was there that the 007 agent was created as the famous author went on to write 10 James Bond novels from that very house. True or false? I believe that's true. He's got one right. He's got one out of six. We need one more to get He's into the World Cup. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, Usain Bolt ran the world's fastest 100 metres in 2009 in what time? 9.5. Two or seven. Eight. He's got two or seven and it's eight. He's got two or seven and it's eight. I can't take oh, that, Michael. You're so close. No, no. Nine point five eight. Two plus seven. Plus and then seven. He's just getting there. He's getting to the eight. Michael, you've got <laughs> look. You've got your socks on. We need to get your shorts and your shirt on. Okay. Cool. You've got uh, two wrong out of three there. Uh, <sighs> we move on to the fourth question. Which actor played Earth? Blitzer, the coach of the Jamaican bobsleigh team in Cool Runnings. John Candy. He's going to the World Cup, everybody. <laughs> He's going to the World Cup. Congratulations, Let's just see how you do on the final two. What is Jamaica's <laughs> national fruit? Pardon? What's Jamaica's Nas national fruit, Michael? National fruit. Mangoes? The correct answer is Aki, which is like a pink Aki. and black thing. Yeah, it looks Aki like a bell pepper. Yeah. Yeah. Aki and saltfish is the national dish. And the last yeah. question, did Bob Marley ever have a UK number one? No. I say no. Is the right answer. You would have thought he would have yeah. done. The closest he came was yeah. number three in 1999, yeah. Mark, years after he was yeah. dead with Sun is Shining. Uh, there we go. Look, Michael, normally we just talk about... <laughs> great song, wasn't it? No normally on this podcast, we normally just talk about John Wilkins' pencil dick or Mark's, you know, um, hair transplant <laughs> that he had in Turkey that year. But I really appreciate you coming on and having that conversation. Let's face it, with three white guys who, who 
have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to those issues. So thanks so much for that, mate, for educating us. And uh, I hope it's an interesting listen for people as well. Michael, best of luck, mate, for the rest of the season and for the World Cup. Can't wait to see you there. No worries at all. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers. Uh, thank you very much everyone for listening to Out of Your League we'll have a new episode for you every week available to download from wherever you get your podcasts you can also watch us on YouTube and don't forget to give us a follow at Out of Your RL on Twitter see you next time